Amen. Well, it was my original design to take us to Matthew chapter 6 today and to look at Jesus' instructions for prayer and how he prayed and to pray like him, at least in how he teaches us how to pray. But as I explained to the Sunday school group today, last night when I went to look at my sermon, um, mysteriously, it just was not there. So um, it was high time for me last night. (laughs) And uh, I had to go in a different direction. And so I thought, where can I go? Because I, I labored for hours over Matthew 6, and it's gone now. It's gone. No attempt to reproduce that. So what can I do to sort of give us an introduction to what we're going to see in Matthew 6 with the Lord's Prayer, but to see a prayer by Jesus himself? And where is the best of Jesus' prayers? Well, all of Jesus' prayers are perfect. But I thought, let's go to John 17, and let's learn from a prayer that Jesus prayed himself. Let's eavesdrop into the prayer of Jesus, a real prayer, not just a a model prayer, not just a prayer of example, not just a prayer of instruction, but an actual prayer, a spontaneous prayer between Father and Son. And what we find is that above everything else, and I hope this rubs off on us, is that the prayer of Jesus is essentially God-centered. God-centered. He buffers his requests with a God-centered exaltation. It opens up his prayer. It is his focus before he goes into praying for you and I. As many people have pointed out, this is kind of a strange way for Jesus, who is our priest, which means he represents us to God. He brings us to God. And of course, in this intercessory work, we see that priestly duty at its highest point. But dear brother and sister, look at the text, verses 1 through 5. You and I are not even mentioned. Because first, Jesus spends time exalting in the glory of God. And so my simple premise today is how do you pray when you pray? When you're gathered in a prayer group, in a prayer meeting, in a prayer circle, how do you break into prayer? Do you immediately begin by rattling off a whole list of petitions? I have request one, request number two, prayer request number three. I tell you what, you have not prayed the way you should pray until you worship in prayer, until you begin by extolling the Lord, exalting the Lord, magnifying the Lord, reveling over the glory of God in redemption. It's so good for the soul to be reminded of the great deeds and the great wonder of God's redemptive work. And that's what Jesus Christ is praying about right here in this priestly prayer as he opens up. He begins by praying over the glory of God. And it is that glory that I want you and I to contemplate here. I want to split up the prayer by looking at first Jesus' prayer 
to the glory of God in election. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, it says here, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. That's the first thing that Jesus is praying about. He is praying about the glory of God in sovereign election. The fact that God had given some to the Son. And Jesus begins his prayer lifting his eyes to heaven. I love it. Jesus lifted up his eyes to his Father. He knew, oh, what weight there must have been in that look. Because Jesus, as he goes on to talk about here, Father, the hour has come. What is this hour? What is the hour has come? Is he making mention to a specific hour on the clock? No. The word here, hour, especially in the Gospel of John, is the hour of intensification throughout the gospel. You know, the first miracle Jesus did was there in Cana. He turned the water into wine and his mother had made request of him. And what did he say? My hour has not yet come, which means that hour is a theological hour. That hour is a thematic hour. That hour has deep meaning. And what is the meaning? That his life, the life of Jesus, was ever moving along the sovereign timeline that God had for him in all of his life, from his birth to his death and everything in between, his life lived along the sovereign timeline of God, his purpose, his redemptive purpose. And there was an hour in which Jesus would come out as the Messiah. He would, he would step into the public view as the Messiah. And that it begins, if you would, it launches him into his ministry. And then you see all throughout the Gospel of John, over and over this hour being repeated the hour is drawing near chapter 7 chapter 10 or chapter 8 chapter 12 chapter 13 chapter 16 the hour is moving closer to what to the climax of the hour to the 11th hour we could say to the hour where the son would be glorified father the hour has come Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. What is Jesus praying about there? He is praying that the glory of God would be put on display through the cross. And that through the cross, God's glory would shine out. That his disciples would see God's glory that they would see the redemption, that they would see the atoning glory of the Messiah. And that's what he's saying. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. In other words, Jesus is saying, do what must be done, and the son of God will do his part of what must be done. 
This phrase here, that the Son may glorify you, symbolizes all of both the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. This is what's in view. It is the condescension of the Son of God coming down. This is what's on Jesus' mind. And so let me break into the exposition to remind us periodically that in Jesus' prayer, he's thinking redemption. In your prayers, are you thinking redemption? He is exalting over the cross. He is speaking of his passive and active obedience in your prayers. Do you ever pray like this? Lord, thank you for glorifying your son, magnifying him by pinning him to the cross. See, this is the way we, this, this will really give life to our prayers, I believe. It will really cause us to slow down before we rattle off a list to God. To first stop and say, oh God, look at the wonder of what you've done. The Son glorified you, and you glorified the Son. The Son was glorified, and he was glorified through suffering. This is what Philippians chapter 2 is all about. It is through the death of the cross, the death of the Son of God on the cross, that he would fulfill the work that God had given him to do, to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death. It is the perfect end to a perfect life, the cross. Philippians chapter 2, let me remind you, means that his exaltation is now certain, and that's part of the glory too. That's part of Jesus being glorified too, is Jesus being lifted up and exalted to the right hand of God. Philippians 2.8 says, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That's his passive obedience, or excuse me, his active obedience. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, there's his passive obedience, even the death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, the same glory that Jesus is praying about right here in John chapter 17, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, his perfect obedience to the Father means that redemption has reached its highest point. It means that from the very opening of redemptive history, when the curse came in, now the curse can be reversed. And to prove that, Romans chapter 5 quickly says, for as through the one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many were made sinners, that is his posterity, his people, his descendants, even so, through the obedience of the one, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. That's his people, his posterity, the ones he represents. So how is God going to magnify the son? Number one, it is through the authority that he has given him. Look at verse two. Christ's authority over all flesh 
even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give, give eternal life. And so that's the very first thing, is the fact that Jesus has authority over all flesh. And here, the word sarks, flesh, the word sarks is flesh, in the, or the word sarks in the Greek here is being used to represent humanity. We know that the word flesh can represent many, many different things. One of the things it could represent, it's, it could represent that, that evil nature, the unredeemed part of who you are, that can be the flesh in a certain context. In this context, it's not speaking about that evil nature, it's speaking about humanity. When the psalmist says, all flesh is grass, he's talking about humanity. So, Jesus, having authority over all of humanity... Isn't that breathtaking? It says he gives eternal life to all that were given to him. That's amazing. There's so much here. Let's see if we can unpack it. But first, Jesus' right to give eternal life to those that the Father gave him is rooted and grounded in the fact that he has authority over all things as Messiah, as judge and as redeemer very quickly then this language that jesus has authority has an old testament background for example let me read to you certain uh, messianic passages like psalm 89 psalm 89 verse 24 says i shall make him my firstborn the highest king of the earth or the highest of the kings of the earth that is talking about Christ. Jesus was exalted as the true Davidic king above all the other kings of the earth. Glorious, glorious, triumphant. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, speaking of the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus, and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him that sounds familiar it's because it is revelation chapter 5 verses 9 through 11 that is exactly what jesus does every tongue every tribe every nation every people worshiping him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed no end to his kingly messianic authority beautiful secondly jesus also has authority as judge very few people walk around this world thinking knowing cognizant of the fact that jesus christ will judge them one day they don't see jesus as a judge we want to see jesus as a at least in culture, they want to see him just as some, some, some iconic religious figure. They want to see Jesus as, you know, a good big brother type of a figure. They just want to see him as a life coach. They want to see Jesus as a friendly, you know, uh, a friend that, 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 that really is kind of there to, to sort of inspire them and to help them along the road of life. But very few people see him as the sovereign judge of all the universe that one day they will stand in front of and give an account for their whole life. The fact that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. 
The fact that it says right here in John 17 that to him all authority is given over all flesh is also a very frightening, frightening prospect. John chapter 5, Jesus says in verse 22 there, he says, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. Isn't that amazing? The father has committed all judgment to the son, which means all judgment now will be interpreted and understood through the relationship that a person has to Jesus Christ so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father he does not he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him if you do not honor jesus christ as lord as god just as you would father god you don't honor father god and if you don't honor father god then you do not honor god at all in acts chapter 10 Verse 42, it says that he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one that God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. God appointed Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. So he has authority over a kingdom. He has authority as judge and he has authority as savior which is exactly where he's going here in john 17 you gave him authority over all flesh to all whom you have given him that he might give eternal life well this is in congruence with john chapter 9 john 9 verse 39 it says for judgment i came into the world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind isn't that amazing? What's the context of this, by the way? John chapter 9. Jesus says, look, I came into the world, the world for a dual reason. Number one, so that blind people can see. Number two, so that people who see can become blind. Well, the first one we might understand, yes, he gives sight to the blind. He opens up the eyes of the blind. That's a, a, a prophetic fulfillment from Isaiah. Yes, we understand that, but... In the same breath, Jesus says, so that those who see may become blind. The context, the context of John chapter 9 is that the Pharisees were so blind to the Messiah, so hardened, they were so hardened against Jesus Christ, so envious of him that they were blind, dead in their sin. And you know what's the most remarkable part of that whole episode there where Jesus heals the blind man? Is that the blind man had been blind from birth from birth he has never been able to see and then finally he sees and what does he see he sees a bunch of blind people who can't see jesus that's what he sees a bunch of people that jesus made blind by hardening them in their sin because of their willful rejection of him fascinating just fascinating Jesus is sovereign as judge, as king, as redeemer. And as redeemer, it says, he has authority to give life to all those that were given to him by God. And so that's the second thing. Not only Christ's authority over all flesh, but also Christ's sovereignty over God's elect. Verse 
Look at the text again. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you have given him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. I think it's, it's important enough just to start with the simple distinction that there are some who have been given to Jesus by the Father. A distinction that many people don't want to make. A distinction that many people don't want to even acknowledge is there. Because of our autonomous hearts. Because, as we talked about in Sunday school, there's only two ways to look at the world. Either through autonomous thinking or through biblical thinking. If we think autonomously, then we want to be an end to ourselves, a measure of all things. We want to think independently of God. And I say we're all born that way. All of us are born. We want to do our own thing. We want to walk our own way. We want to live our own life. We have our own plans. We have our own destiny. In our, and in our mind, we have our own designs. And we don't want to acknowledge God. We don't want to acknowledge his sovereignty. But Jesus doesn't care about any of that. Jesus is sovereign nonetheless. And he is sovereign over God's people. Now turn with me to you know where. John chapter 6. Some of you know where. John chapter 6. This language of being given. This language of the Father giving to the Son. This language of the, of the Son doing what he wills with those that are given. This is all going back to John chapter 6 where he earlier introduced the concept. It says in John 6 beginning in verse 39. I think James White's worked through this exegesis probably a million times. I should have just went to his website and copied and pasted what he has said on this because he's pointed this out to people probably a thousand times and still many people refuse to see it but let's see if I can do a better job than James White no I'm just joking <laughs> don't, don't send him that clip or anything okay okay uh, John 6 4, uh, 39 this is the will of him who sent me this is his will this is God's unalterable will for all people. This is his will. The will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So there he looks at election as a concept, as a whole. And you might say, well, it says here of all that he, I lose nothing. He mentioned nothing about people. Keep reading. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And jump down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Day. Those that come are those that have been given. And if you have been given, then you will believe. And if you believe, you will be raised. That's what you will do. And this is what Jesus is praying about. Jesus is praying about this. Do we pray about this when we pray? Do we begin our prayers by contemplating our election? Oh, God, thank you, sovereign God, that I am in your number. Not of myself, not of my doing. Election, when we pray about election, should humble us. 
We should never pray about election to try to, to, try to confuse somebody or trip somebody up or, or to try to show off how much we know about sovereignty. No, we should, we should pray about our election and say, oh God, how unworthy am I to be given to the Son by the Father? Who am I that I should gain from his reward? The, hum, the, the, the doctrine of election should humble us to absolutely no end. But so it is that Jesus is praying about the golden chain of redemption, and I'm concerned for our prayers. Do we even think to pray like this when we pray? To think to pray about election, to think to pray about justification, to think to pray about sanctification and glorification. It is in this prayer, it's almost like Jesus gives us this, this, this wonderful, wonderful chain of redemption all throughout the prayer. If you're not there, turn back there, John 17. John 17, you see this everywhere in connection to this whole idea of the sovereignty of God. You see his protection. You, de- you see his intercession. You see his justifying grace. Look at the 17, verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the men that you've given me out of the world. Amazing. He says, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. This is something of what it means in Ephesians chapter 1 that salvation is is determined by the Father, if you would. He is sovereign. He elects. He chooses. Redemption is executed by the Son, and it's applied by the Spirit. They were yours, Father. They belonged to you. Before you belonged to Jesus, you belonged to the Father. It was his decree, eternal and sovereign, to have you, (laughs) to choose you, He pulled you into his covenant love before there was ever a world. And he sovereignly chose to possess you, to have a relationship with you, and then to give you to the Son so that he might redeem you, so that God could obtain you. Isn't this amazing? This is what Jesus is praying about. He's not praying a shallow prayer. He says in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. And unless you have the mind of Christ, you will find that to be extremely offensive. What do you mean, Jesus? You're not praying on behalf of the world. You're just praying for those whom the Father gives you? Yes. Jesus, I remember preaching through this text. I said, Jesus discriminates in his prayers. And he has the right to do it. He doesn't pray on behalf of the world. But those that you have given me, for they are yours. Look at verse 12. Jump down to verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Protection. Preservation. Those that you have given me again. And I guarded them, protecting us. Not one of them perished except or but the son of perdition. Who is that? Judas. Judas Iscariot. The son of perdition. So that the scripture will be fulfilled. 
Jesus is sovereign over all of those whom he chooses. Jesus is sovereign over all of those whom he hardens. Jesus is sovereign over all of those that will betray him and that will accept him. This is what it means for God to be sovereign. There are not two sovereigns in the world. This is why I feel compelled to have to preach on Calvinism soon because I really believe many of you don't understand the doctrines of grace correctly. I think for many of you, the doctrines of grace is like a controversy swirling around in your mind, but you have yet to really harness the doctrines of grace for what they are, that they produce humility, deep, deep sense of, of abasement, and that it produces exaltation and worship to God. I think many of you are still snarling at the sovereignty of God, questioning how is it fair and right for God to be this sovereign? How dare God choose only some to be saved and choose others and leave others in their sin to be damned? Jesus is not ashamed of the sovereignty of God. I've had to leave a church because they were ashamed of the sovereignty of God. Oh, don't talk about that. That's going to offend people. Well, then you might as well not talk about Jesus at all because Jesus offends people everywhere. Everywhere that the real Jesus is preached, he must always and forever remain intolerable to the world and to many churches. Many of his statements are intolerable, inconceivable, politically correct, are you kidding me? His first sermon in Nazareth, they try to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> you want to talk about a politically incorrect sermon? Your own synagogue was so angry at the way you preached. They try to throw you off a cliff. I've never been trying to throw it off a cliff yet. But Jesus is not afraid of the truth. Jesus says, the world hates me. Wow. Are you speaking the truth so much and so clearly and so with so much conviction and with so much force and so uncompromised that you can say, the world at work hates me. My neighbors, after I shared the gospel with them, I brought them some chocolate chip cookies. I tried to bring them some, you know, some gifts. They hate me because I told them without Jesus, you're damned. You're going to a place that Jesus says will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No rest for the worm that you are. And for all eternity, you'll be writhing in agony. So many people today are abandoning the doctrine of hell because it is intolerable. And I agree. It is intolerable, but we must preach it nonetheless. I remember being at the funeral of one of my own relatives, and they had a Catholic priest there, and he was speaking all these lies. And I was just a young believer, and I was sitting among the crowd of people off to the side of the gravesite, and I was just sitting there seething with anger that this guy who didn't even know my cousin 
was sitting there assuring everyone that she is in a much better place right now. She's fine. She is smiling down on you. To which I answered in my heart, because at the time I wasn't going to interrupt. Maybe I should have, but anyway, that's another story. She's not. Oh, I wish I could say that about her. But to my knowledge, she died coming home from partying in the world, in sin, and she's probably writhing in pain right now, in endless torment, thinking about her sin and her life, and thinking if only I could go back. She got hit, middle of the night, drunk driver, gone. Party is over. Judgment begins. This is why Jesus is blood earnest about everything he taught. He could care less who, who thought what about him. He could care less what you think about him, what I think about him. I'll tell you the truth. Even as a pastor, as a preacher, I sit here going, I got to preach this. Oh boy, who's going to come to church today? And oh boy, who's going to hear the words that I got to preach? Because these are going to be kind of tough. Son of perdition, so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. I don't know if we're going to grow a church by preaching that. Let's just go to the Song of Solomon and talk about how to have a good marriage. No, we can't do that. Because Jesus didn't do that. And so I feel compelled in the days ahead of us to preach to you about the doctrines of grace and to unfold to you the glory of redemption, to unfold to you the panorama of the grace of God, to unfold to you how the doctrines of grace make you sing louder with more brokenness, with more of a sincerity in your heart, with more thankfulness and gratefulness in your heart when you know I don't deserve the grace of God, but here I am. And who has made me to differ but God himself? So he's exalting in his prayer, praying about the sovereignty of God, praying about the fact that God is going to get great glory, glory, glorious redemption, and that he's headed back there. So he rejoices over the elect of God, and he also glories over the, 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 the concept of eternal life. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How is your eternal life going today? How is eternal life right now in your soul, in your life, in your home? How does eternal life look like? What does it look like for you? Because you're in it. Eternal life is not just when you go to the place of eternal days. Eternal life is a sphere of existence. It is an already not yet concept in the Bible. It has begun, it has been inaugurated, and when you came to Jesus Christ and were united to him by faith, God gave you life. What kind of life? Eternal life. This is how Jesus can say, though you die, you will live. Beautiful. This is the only way that I can look death square in the face, look at death and stare it right in the face and quote 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
Death belongs to me. Death belongs to me. It is the gateway to paradise. It is the, it is the doorway to perfect access to God. It is the portal through which I will experience the never-ending beautiful array of the splendor and the effulgence and the beauty and the outstreaming and the outflowing of the beauty of God. Death belongs to you because you have eternal life. That's why. And if you have eternal life, I'm sorry, my Arminian friends, you can't drop it out of your back pocket like a wallet. You can't lose it like a set of keys. It's eternal. It doesn't end. That's the glory of it, the beauty of it. You have eternal life. And this is everything that Jesus has become for us, life, life abundantly. So how is eternal life going for you right now? How's eternal life going for you right now? Do you know him? That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, whom you have sent. How is your fellowship with God? How is your communion with God? How is your knowledge of God? Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you growing in your communion with God? Are you getting to know God more? Or are you stagnant? Are you in a rut? Are you in a hole? Are you in a pit? Are you in a rut and you can't get out? You can't progress. You say, I've been here. I don't feel anything anymore. You know, I used to feel a lot of stuff when I was a young Christian. I don't feel nothing anymore. All I have is trials now. Life is just hard now. Well, I would say that, like Calvin, all of life is the knowledge of God. All of life is to grow in your understanding of who God is. All of life is to grow in the knowledge of his grace, in the knowledge of his being, in the knowledge of his ways, in the knowledge of his salvation. That's what eternal life is all about. I'm afraid for many of you that if you don't go the right direction, you know, there's, let's get honest here for a second. There's only two ways you're going to go in the Christian life. You're either going to move forward, you're going to go deeper, you're going to grow, or Hebrews chapter 2, you're going to drift. You're going to drift, you're going to wander, you're going to stray, and before you know it, you're going to have a hard heart of unbelief. And you're going to depart from the living God. That's it. There's no middle ground. There is no fence that you can ride. There's no neutral, there's no neutral in, in the walkout. You don't put it in neutral and just sit there. You're going somewhere with your soul, with your heart, with your spirit. The only question is, is where are you going? And what is the means of getting you there? How are you going to get there? I'll tell you, if you're going to grow in grace, this is how you're going to do it. This is how you do it. There's no secret to the Christian faith, but this is how you're going to grow in grace. The means of grace. What's the means of grace? Worship, Bible study, prayer, going to church, sitting under the word of God, personal evangelism. That's how you're going to grow in grace. Personal Bible study. This is how you're going to grow in grace. It doesn't happen any other way. So, oh, I'm so frightened when people say they're bored of going to church. I'm getting tired. It's just the same old stuff all the time. 
I'm so glad Jesus doesn't get bored of church. I'm so glad that Jesus never got bored of giving us his grace, never gets bored of renewing his grace for us. I'm so glad that God has given us the means of grace. I'm not saying, please don't, don't discount experience because I don't. I've had wonderful, I've had ecstatic experiences with God. I've been emotional. I've had experiences studying the word of God where I can't even study anymore. All I can do is weep over the word of God. I'm so, I, I know that there's experience there. Don't, I'm not discrediting that. What I'm saying is this, there's no key to Christianity. The only key is that we obey and that we use the means of grace to grow in grace so that we will know what eternal life is all about. There's no way around it. You can't short circuit it. You can't circumvent it. All you can do is obey what the word of God has given you and given us. Look at Psalm 119. How is the psalmist reviving his soul? According to the word of God. That's how. Bible study? Yes! Bible study. That's how he does it. That's how he does it. And lastly, Jesus is glorying in eternal life. He's glorying in election, and he's glorying in the glory of the triune God in verse 4 and 5. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What does this mean but that this is not new glory? The glory that Jesus is praying about is not something new. This is literally teaching us several things. Number one, it is teaching us the pre-incarnate glory of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to us from the realm of endless days and stepped into time, stepped into space, and stepped into our world through the incarnation. Jesus is saying, take me back. Take me back to where I was before Philippians 2. Take me back to the realm of endless days. Take me back to the place where nothing but pure Trinitarian love existed. Nothing else existed. There weren't any stars. There wasn't space. There were no galaxies or universe. There weren't any angels or devils. And before anything was, Jesus Christ, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, perfect unity with one another, perfect love. We can't fathom an existence like this. Omnipotent persons lavishing omnipotent degrees of love upon one another eternally. We can't fathom it. But I have such good news for you, brothers and sisters. Turn with me to, chap to chapter 17 here, verse 20. Verse 20. Well, verse 24. Father, because God desires to draw us into that very same glorious relationship. He says, Father, I desire that they also. Now, at this point, it's not just the disciples. He's praying for everybody because if you jump up to verse 20 he says i do not ask on behalf of these alone i.e the let the 11 disciples but 
For those also who believe in me through their word, that is you and me. That is us. Those who have become believers through the word of the apostles. And therefore, when he says that they may be with me where I am, so that they, you and me, may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That is the glory that Jesus Christ wants to draw us into and wants to show us and is going to show us in heaven and for all eternity, we will see the triune glory of God. This is what Jesus is praying about. Is this what you are praying about when you pray? I hope that when we rush into our prayer meetings, that when you pray together in whatever context, that there is always a buffer, that there's always a, a segue into your petitions. Well, Lord, I pray for my sister today. I pray for my mother. I want to pray for our house. So you keep us safe, Lord. I want to pray for this. I want to pray for our bills, Lord. Before you do all of that, you have missed a great blessing, dear brother or sister. You have missed the blessing of exalting in who God is. Begin your prayers by exaltation. Begin your prayers with worship. One more passage to show that this is not just me trying to emphasize something. Look at Acts chapter 4 because it is the pattern of the early church. Acts chapter 4. It is the pattern of the early church, and I want it to be our pattern. I want it to be your pattern. Verse 24. Great need. There's a great reason to pray. There is a threat. There's an imprisonment, and the disciples get on their knees. I'll tell you what. If anyone from this church went to prison because of the gospel, this whole church would be on their knees. But how do they go to their knees? How do they pray? Verse 24, and when they had heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you that made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth, they took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now... Lord, that's a nice segue into their first request. Now, after we got that out of the way, take note of their threats. So easy to pray like this when you begin by remind, God doesn't need to be reminded who he is. Who do you think that's for? God doesn't, oh, thank you, that's right, I did do that. <laughs> it's for you. It's for me. It's for the condition and the framework of our heart. It's to get us in a right frame. It's, it, you know, prayer meetings, we need to create the right atmosphere in prayer. Worshipful, reverent, sober-minded, theological, 
calculated, precision. These are all things that belong to this example of prayer. Do we do this? Are our prayers theological? Do we pray our theology? Or do we just rush into a quick prayer list? I tell you, if you do that, you're skipping a vital, vital part of what prayer is all about, what Jesus is modeling for us right here. And next week, Lord willing, if I don't lose my sermon again, we will look at Jesus' instructions on prayer and how that has everything to do with true piety. Let's pray. Father, we do begin by thanking you for your grace, your mercy. Oh, Lord, to recount and recall how great you are, to think upon your attributes, both your incommunicable and communicable attributes, the ways that you are that only you are, and the ways that you are in which you've chosen to share with us. Lord, thank you for your great love. Thank you that you love us enough, Lord, to pray first and foremost about your own glory, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that as our high priest, you were so right to pray about yourself first. Because without you and the work of redemption and the work of the cross and the glory of your name, none of our requests would be even possible. Nothing else could even follow that. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the example you give us of a God-centeredness of prayer, the God-centeredness of worship. And help us, Lord, not to grow weary. And in all of our praying, Lord, help us to be just that, totally involved in who you are and in what you've done for us. Make us mindful. Help us not to just skip over who we are addressing as we begin our address. Have mercy on us, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord, we pray, to pray according to your word. Even as Acts chapter four shows us that the the church prayed the word of God. They prayed the word of God back to you. And so, Lord, help us in all of our prayers to be saturated in your Bible, that our prayers would literally be saturated in Scripture. Father, help us. I know that our church and the health of our church depends on our prayers. It doesn't depend on our advertisement. It doesn't depend on our numbers. It doesn't depend on our activities. It doesn't depend on all the programs that we can contrive. Primarily, Lord, The health of our church depends on the purity of our worship, which has everything to do with the way we pray. We ask you to help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.